we're disconnected from our food system and we're really looking to make that connection, whether it's in a restaurant or at home. And it's one thing to tell a story of where your food comes from. It's another thing to show it and get to touch it. Welcome to the HTW Podcast. We're your hosts, Zoe Sakutis and Erica Huss, founders of Blueprint Cleanse, the iconic juice brand that sparked a multi-billion dollar category. We bootstrapped, scaled, and sold, and now we're moving on. We put down the juicer and picked up the mic to start a conversation. We'll bring you behind-the-scenes information on leading brands and emerging ideas in this rapidly evolving world of wellness. Every Wednesday, we chat with experts or entrepreneurs who help us cut through the noise and bring you information you can actually use. No shaming, no guilt, just the cold-pressed truth about real ways you can feel better, mentally, physically, and emotionally. And bonus, we even share our often humiliating personal experiences, all in the name of your wellness journey. Clinical studies have shown that writing five-star reviews improves mood and circulation. So if you like what you hear, give us some love and share with a friend. Often irreverent and occasionally intuitive, consider us your navigators on the bumpy highway to well. Hi, Zoe. Hey, Erica. What's going on? <laughs> I was just thinking about lunch. What were you thinking? That I have a bag of wilting greens in my lettuce drawer that mm. I got from the farmer's market on Saturday and it's so now delicious. Tuesday. I um, bet it smells amazing. That I need to consume that immediately. It seems like a good segue into the conversation <laughs> with the guests we're about to introduce. <laughs> did I set it up? <laughs> you did. You teed it up all right, Sakutis. <laughs> we're talking about farm shelf. When, how amazing would it be? And when you want your salad for lunch, you could actually just go like snip, snip and cut some greens fresh from their little like plant that they're growing from right in your kitchen. Yeah. This is not like going into your backyard. They've, it's like what they're doing, I think is pretty revolutionary. Yeah. It is hydroponics. It's all about the hydroponics. So it should be like, a, you know. <laughs> well, it's, it's about hydroponics, but it's also about... Sustainability. Like, it's, it's sustainability. It's the tech of the growing, but it's also the tech component that allows the company to support the clients. So basically right now they're working with primarily commercial clients. So they have cafeterias and restaurants because these these units are huge. And I think it's fascinating that like through the tech, they can actually monitor the growth of the plants and like let their clients know when it's time to harvest. I mean, it's impressive. I mean, it doesn't get it. I'm pretty much a black thumb. Like I will kill, I do have a lot of you plants. You have a lot of plants. I, I have a black thumb in this, in this. No, group. I have a lot of plants, but like I also have people who help me care for them. <laughs> well, I have a lot of plants, but they're artificial because I have cats. Okay. So, oh, wait, and the cats will kill the plants? No, the plants will kill the cats. There's like a lot of plants that oh, cats really? can't eat. Yeah. And oh. Cats eat everything. So, um, all right. So, your cats are officially not invited over. Yeah. Ever. <laughs> Otherwise, they were. Um, no, because I'm <laughs> so allergic to them. Uh, but yeah, anyway, so this is like something that is so easy to do. And they just started, and he has. He being Andrew Scher, who is the founder that yes, we spoke with. Andrew Scher, uh, who it's debatable how we pronounce his last name. Even <laughs> he doesn't he will, even know. He, he doesn't even know, <laughs> as it turns out. So, um, Anyway, but he's he's got a great product um, and you can hear all about why. It's really, we get into sustainability and how we need to be so much more connected to our food and Farm Shelf is just, helping us do that. Yeah, more thoughtful about where it's coming from in the first place and that kind of opens the door to what they're doing, which yeah. is super exciting. And I think it's going to be a really incredible opportunity for them going forward. Totally. Have a listen. All right, sure. <laughs> Hi, my name is Andrew Steer, and I'm the CEO and founder of Farm Shelf. At Farm Shelf, we make it possible for anyone to grow their own food by providing them um, the tools and the intelligence. Mm. That's not you know really how it goes, but it's not. It <laughs> no. sounded super convincing. Super convincing. I like it. Yeah. Also, I like that we, in describing it, sometimes maybe it's hard to get the visual, but I like that we actually had the honor of tasting some of the products from Farm Shelf really just by coincidence, like yeah. right after you guys had your initial conversation. Yeah. Just totally randomly, we were at a dinner party um, and the wife of your co-founder showed up with a tray of edible greens, like branded Farm Shelf. And we usually get like, you know, people will send us product if they have a product before we sit down with them to chat, but it's, it's not as easy to just like FedEx a tray of edible greens. So... <laughs> Weren't we lucky? It was it was delicious and also 
visually very appealing. Beautiful. Plus, you know, just a natural experience where it just pops up into your daily life. Yeah. I mean, there you go. Was that some seating going on there? <laughs> just trying to germinate an idea here. Oh, oh I we're like starting it. With All right. Puns. Here we it's go. It's really bad. I feel like I have a list of like number of bad puns. In fact, we've had to limit it a little bit. Um, do you have a you have a pun limit that you have to that, do you have like internally a jar? for our branding? Okay. I feel like we always look at that and we go, okay, like there's so many puns that come up when you're working on this stuff every day. There's even an email I think that went out recently that talked about. Something about uh, schools and it being, um, it's meant to be. Meant to be. Ay, Dios mío. We got to draw the line somewhere. Yeah, yeah. That, just... that crosses over into like mispronunciation rather than puns. So that's, I'm, I'm, on, the, I'm on the shelf with that one. Oh or, my That wasn't good because really I'm supposed to be Lord. on the fence. Um, anyway. what, do, what do buns, at, wait, what do buns and puns have in common? I don't know. Buns, lowest form of bread. Puns, lowest form of humor. I feel like I've heard that before, but not about not buns. Not quite in that way. Yeah, a different version. Anyway, let's talk about Farm Shelf right, for real. Let's Sounds talk great. about it's Farm hardware. Shelf. It's also the technology and the whole idea here. It's based around sustainability. Is that right? Like, what is the origin of this concept? Yeah. So, um, growing up, I was really fortunate to volunteer with some nonprofits that worked in the agriculture and microfinance space in Central America, and learning a lot about how. Where pe- did you grow up? I uh, grew up in Seattle. Okay. And through that, learning a lot about different tools that were being used to not only um, finance, but educate people on how to you know, farm and, and make a living off that in Central America in a unique way. So growing up, you know, worked with a, a, a nonprofit that was really involved in the agriculture and, and finance space. And then you know, always had that kind of in the back of my mind, went away to college, then ended up going into banking and, and advertising sales. But while working at Pinterest of all places, started thinking, you know, I really want to grow my own food and, and just having this passion that, you know, I'd grown up with an amazing backyard uh, where my parents grew some of our food. And then my grandparents um, on both sides just loved growing their own food. And so started looking at different ways to do it and really getting into hydroponics. Um, and then when looking- Okay, but can you, can oh, yeah. you sorry, can sorry. you explain hydroponics? Yes. Just like the definition? Yeah, yeah. so hydroponics is growing- with water instead of, you know, a typical soil media. I feel like I was first introduced to hydroponics by smoking a lot of weed in college and having somebody be like, it's hydroponic, man. It's grown without soil. I'm like, well, yeah. I don't know what that means, but yeah. I guess it's probably better than soil weed. I don't know. So hydroponics is where you're growing in, uh, in, in essentially a water bath where it's okay. either it's sitting in water or water is flowing by it so that the roots have access to kind of nutrients in a different way. Mm-hmm. Often, a lot of times these circles are, recir- these systems are recirculating, meaning that they use less water and they're really efficient, not only in their water usage and nutrient usage, but also um, in how fast the plants are able to grow. Yeah. It's super cool. It's kind of like when you get, um, yeah, sometimes you can get basil and mm-hmm. it's in like a plastic, yeah. you know, bag, and that bag has like a bit of water at the bottom, and it's got it's just sort of floating around. That's basil that was grown hydroponically. Yeah, yeah. and I feel like you also see it with tomatoes a lot. So really hydroponic caprese. Yeah, <laughs> we're going into t- pun territory again. <laughs> be careful. We're caprese for puns. Don't be ridiculous. Um, okay. So I, to shorten that answer and make it a little bit more succinct. No, it was uh, succinct. It was succinct. Growing up, just had a passion for agriculture and yeah. growing my own food through family, friends, and some nonprofit work, went into banking and then advertising sales. And while working at Pinterest, really uh, started looking into how to grow my own food and realized that there that's were... that's what you're supposed to do at Pinterest, right? Well, yeah. <laughs> click Pinterest boards on how to grow your own food and like other DIY <laughs> what was like, your actual things. What was your actual job at Pinterest? Because while you were not doing your job, you were clearly doing exploring this, but what were you meant to be doing at Pinterest? <laughs> well, um, working with different clients and helping them advertise on Pinterest and okay. really connect with the right users. And right. Um, also just being encouraged to, to use the platform. And I think you know a lot of people think about Pinterest as this kind of women mainly platform, even though there's a lot of guys that use it for DIY sure. um, projects, everything from building houses to... I actually used it at one point for making snow skis in college. Oh, yeah. You made your own skis? Made yeah. two pairs of my own skis. You grow your own food, you make your own skis. Jesus, Mary and Joseph. Where'd you go to school? <laughs> Pepperdine. Uh, oh, down in the LA area. Beautiful. I had um, a boyfriend once whose sister played volleyball there. And I went to go see a game. This is totally on subject, by the way. <laughs> and I actually, I was like shocked at how beautiful that campus yeah. was. We like, like joked it was the nicest yeah. place we'd ever live. And then we graduated and we're like, oh shoot. Like yeah. we had we were ocean totally views right. in college. Like, and now this is ridiculous. never going to happen again. It's all downhill from there. Yeah. And so you studied- <laughs> That was a ski um, joke, by the way. International business. <laughs> 
<laughs> studied international studied business. international business with okay. a minor in accounting. In college, okay. built a rock climbing wall uh, that could collapse to hide from our landlord in okay. our apartment. Um, and then it was like, what's the next project? Uh, and it was like, okay, uh, it was either going to be, you know, make a system to brew our own whiskey or make our own whiskey or, Super helpful. or make our own skis. And Useful. so we decided to go down the skis route. It didn't work out that well. We, I made a lot of mistakes and learned a lot about kind of the pitfalls of, of building a physical product that you right. know, actually has kind of like a durable good, if you will. And through that- So you didn't go to school for like industrial design. No, but even though both my parents are in sales, they kind of have a maker side to them, um, okay. especially my dad. And so, yeah, just kind of picked it up, YouTube videos, and then different classes at um, a place called Tech Shop that enabled me to learn, you know, 3D printing, um, different types of additive uh, and subtractive manufacturing, all with just a business degree. Wow. Well done. All right. So you're a builder. Love building things. Love it. Okay. So you decided you wanted to grow your own food and started researching how you could do this in a way that kind of fused the experience of farming with tech. Is that is that right? I mean... Really, it was just this passion to want to grow my own food. And I lived in San Francisco, you know, a really dense city. And looking into hydroponics and indoor systems, I just saw that there was a lot of misinformation and there was no really easy plug and play product that could, you know, output like really quality ingredients day in and day out. I even bought some systems and they didn't work that well. So I was like, this should be easier. Mm -hmm. And then looking at technology that was both in the social media space, the LED lighting space, even the medical device space, and looking at a way to really take technology from those spaces, reapply it to this problem and change what's possible. Not just from a performance standpoint, but really from a user experience standpoint. So what was the problem? What was sort of the bigger problem? Did you have like a moment of, you know, uh, we're screwed, like sustainably, this is just how we're eating, how we're farming, how we're living uh, is not going, we're we're not going to make it. Like someone needs to come up with a clever solution to at least start chipping away at that. Yeah, I think it really is I, I, an obsession with efficiency, not um, just of resources, um, but also of time and, and of joy. And how do we provide this experience that not only outputs a, you know, a, a high amount of really quality ingredients and, and nutritious food with using the least amount of resources possible, but also does it in a way that brings joy into your everyday life? Yeah. We're disconnected from our food system and we're really looking to make that connection, whether it's in a restaurant or at home. And it's one thing to tell a story of where your food comes from. It's another thing to show it and get to touch it. Mm -hmm. And so that's really where this desire came from is to create a beautiful experience and efficient way of growing food, you know, where it's consumed, starting with, you know, these these restaurants, these corporate cafeterias and hotels, but really long-term looking at this as the Lego blocks to grow food where you live, Mm -hmm. work and eat. Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Easier said than done. I mean, at least for me, I don't know what your history is in this department, Erica. But I'm I, my own food. <laughs> yeah, but I tried. So upstate where we have some, I tried to grow like some lettuce, scrap like that. Like the animals ate it in like 0.2 seconds. It was a total joke. And then here in Brooklyn, I tried to do my little like herb, whatever, garden. Like, you, first of all, you have to pot your own plants mm-hmm. because if you just, okay, for everyone who's listening, do not try and grow your food, your plants, your vegetables, whatever it is, your herbs directly in the soil. If you live in the city, like it is so contaminated. There is like insanely high levels. I had my backyard tested for lead. No way. And an environmentalist came and he literally said like, it's it's dangerous. These are dangerous levels of lead. So, um, and I was just thinking about like my kids going out there and playing in the dirt. That's why I did it. And he said, you know, Pretty much all the soil, all the parks, all the dirt in Brooklyn contains unhealthy high levels of lead. Um, so it's another beautiful part about hydroponics, right? Is that you don't, you're not relying. You're not relying on the soil, soil. as well as this closed system where because you don't have the, um, at least with indoor growing and, and kind of controlled environment agriculture is what this space is called. Um, by controlling that environment, you are preventing pests. You're providing the plant exactly what it needs when mm-hmm. it needs it. And actually making it so that you don't need to use pesticides or herbicides um, if you're doing it, in, in my opinion, in, a, in a, the better way and sustainable way. And that it, on top of that, that because you're kind of recirculating uh, the things that you're using, not only are you not wasting them, 
but that agricultural runoff isn't ending up in you know streams or in our soil exactly. um, in ways that are unhealthy. So what type of what type of products are we talking about? Are we talking about primarily like leafy greens, or are we talking about the full kind of spectrum of produce? Where's the where's the best kind of hit rate for for this concept? Yeah. So with our current system, it's uh, four feet wide, two feet deep, six and a half feet tall. That's the shelf itself. That's the size of our kind of initial product. Yeah. Can we just like give a visual for everyone what it looks like? Because it's really beautiful. It's like this beautifully lit kind of, almost like if you could imagine a gigantic fish tank that's as tall as you are, that's enclosed in glass and has a bunch of shelves like a bookshelf. And then- Or like a miniature greenhouse for dolls. Yeah. And it's, anyway, okay. That's the visual. It's kind of like a book, it's a bookcase meets an appliance meets furniture and trying to really find that- um, that middle ground where we create something that's beautiful that people want to have, you know, in their restaurants, um, in their or hotels, in their living room, and I mean, in their living honestly, room eventually. Like eventually. I, I would, it would be so beautiful. We're headed that way, absolutely. Um, and so with that, it's you know, the, it's really f- for us has been focusing on on, on initial product and, and really knocking it out of the park with that before adding additional features, doing a few things really well before you know taking on the next challenges. And so our current system, four feet wide, two feet deep, six and a half feet tall, can grow up to 140 heads of lettuce in a month. What? Or five to six pounds of herbs a week. Wow. Five to six pounds of herbs a week is enough to definitely sustain a restaurant. It depends on the restaurant. Size, right? Like, but your average, like... It really depends on the restaurant and, and, you know, the throughput, their menu, all these different things. Um, One example is we work with American Express's corporate cafeteria. And so they feed about 3,000 people a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to be asking you for that contact after we're done. <laughs> they have <laughs> six units yeah. and they provide about 70% of their herbs from farm shelf. Wow. And so, oh. you know, we're at various so, standpoint or points in optimizing the yield still, shipping new plant recipes over the uh, internet connected systems and, and, and tweaking different things that, you know, we can change remotely in the system. And so with all this, it's really about, you know, making it easy to grow a variety of things, but starting off with leafy greens, herbs, and microgreens, things that we know are easier to grow hydroponically, but on the roadmap, having strawberries, peppers, tomatoes, eggplant, cucumbers, um, some items that we've grown either in our lab or know can be grown hydroponically, that it's just about, you know, enabling those crops and, and providing the right settings for it um, at the right time. And with some of them, different hardware. And where do the seeds come from? How does that, is that also part of your, your offering? Or Yeah, so the way it works is a, as a, a client purchases the unit. Um, How much is the unit? $8,250 is, is the kind of the you know standard price, though it, uh, it really depends on where you're at in the country and a few other things. And then... It is $125 a month for the plant pods, the nutrients, and the farm shelf app. So the unit shows up, you plug it into the wall, you fill it with water, and then you take the plant pods that we've provided you, put them in the germination area. A week later, you move them up to the grow area. We then notify you a few weeks later when it's time to harvest. And it's kind of just this cycle where you know, it's so always And so on your end, food. you're like monitoring this whole, that's amazing. And the plant pods are cute. They're like just little mini, uh, you know, planters. What are they made out of? So the it's made of a few different things. There's a seed that we source from a company called Johnny's, and then it's in a peat moss. Oh, it's peat moss. Oh, yeah. okay, great. And so it's in peat moss. There's a, a plastic ring around it yeah. that kind of provides an easier item to clean and pull out that's reusable. Okay. But we're even trying to get away from some of the plastics that we're using in our system from a sustainability standpoint and just trying to solve those problems as we get more funding and have more resources to devote to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we started going down the path of where the seeds come from. So, but what, like, where are your, where are you sourcing from? Are you working with um, different like organizations that are providing the pods, or how is that? The pods are assembled in house, but the 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 seeds come from a company called Johnny's, and everything does. Uh, the majority of the seeds. Okay. We've also done some unique partnerships working with this group called the Crop Trust. They are a UN or multinational backed, international backed organization that um, is really focused on saving and preserving uh, seed diversity and food diversity. Mm-hmm. And so with them, we're taking rare seeds they have from around the world and growing them in our system at Tender Greens, actually in Union Square, so that there's different crops being grown there that haven't been grown um, you know, outside of a lab in you know, hundreds of years. That's amazing. Um, and so it's really been incredible to, to bring that right into the middle of New York and educate people on that. 
as well as get to taste it as an everyday New Yorker. Yeah. So can you talk a little bit more about that seed diversity concept? Because I feel like that's something that is starting to get a little bit of traction in terms of understanding, even just from a human consumption point of view, like what health-wise, what are the benefits of sort of eating more of a diverse diet and, and how this kind of contributes to that? Yeah. And so when looking at kind of food in our, in our, in our health and just our food system as a whole, crop diversity really helps with resilience and exposing us. There will always be certain things that come about with different either diseases or issues in you know, certain varieties of mm-hmm. plants. And so by having that crop diversity, it really enables us to kind of guard against that and that getting into this monocropping is really dangerous mm-hmm. from, you know, from an agriculture and food, si- food system side. On the flip side, you know, just eating one crop or some of these crops that may, might not have the, um, the right blend of nutrients where you're only eating one thing and not having a, really a diversity of different um, items is, is real dangerous. I can't speak too much to the nutrition side per se, mm-hmm. but what we have seen is that you know, introducing kind of these new crops and growing them closer to the consumer not only means that you're driving that interest, but that by growing them closer to the consumer and eating them closer to when they're harvested means that they're more nutritious. Mm-hmm. Um, with the USDA, I believe, saying that about 45% of a crop's nutritional value is lost in transit mm-hmm. between the field, the distributor, another distributor, the grocery store, and then finally in your home. Right. It's a lot. People don't understand how far their food travels. Yeah. And, and how much it during, de- depletes in on transit, the journey. Yeah. It's just degrading. I mean, it's, it's really losing nutritional value um, with every passing day. So to be able to just go in your living room or your cafeteria and snip some off and like, I mean, so going back to the diversity thing, I mean, it's sort of like, I just think about humans in general, right? Like there is power in diversity. There's health in diversity. Like if we were all, you know, if our gene pool was not big enough, we'd all be inbred and sickly. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But like, there's a lot to be said. Same thing with dogs, right? Like it's very similar if you're sort of crossing these breeds, you have a much stronger, healthier dog, whereas you have all these like purebreds, like they get, there's problems with them. And it's kind of a similar concept when you think about like seed diversity. I'm going with it. Yeah, I like it. Let's see with it. (laughs) um, But anyway, yeah, it's... uh, I can't speak to how the genetics on the seeds things work, but just from a... um, Well, I went to school for communication, so clearly, yeah. (laughs) No, no. It's more just, you know, we've really brought together a team of um, engineers, you know, scientists, sales and marketing to really, you know, bring this story to not only to life, but to make it possible. And so having a little bit of background in these, but knowing that there are certain complexities to to plants in general, that even as a society, we don't even fully know or understand. It's, it's incredible how much there is still to learn about the different plants and seeds and the ways that um, plants react to different stimulus that mm-hmm. we, that we will get to like learn over these next, you know, few decades, I think. Yeah. It's pretty fascinating. It's like, it's such an amazing product. Just when are you guys going to get to the point where we see you in like school cafeterias for like little kids and maybe some third world countries where you're just like shipping them seeds or like whatever neighborhoods that have like, that are considered to be food deserts and, you know, they can't afford this type of, I mean, what, how far are you? Yeah. Like what stage are you in right now? Yeah. So we're still a very early stage company. Uh, we have about 75 units out there right now. Okay. By the time this comes out, it'll probably be well over 100. It's going fast, but at the same time, it's starting with these, you know, these pro users that are even giving us feedback on the flavor so that we can tweak the plant recipes. Oh, the flavor. Yeah. Interesting. And that as we scale manufacturing and introduce new features, that that will not only enable us to grow a larger variety of crops, but grow a higher yield mm-hmm. and bring the cost of making it down. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't envision a future where I'm expecting someone to pay $8,000 right. for a system, nor do I think that's a good idea. Right. And so it's really starting, you know, with this, um, this pro product and then through that learning all these different things and making it accessible where we'll be making a unit that costs us, you know, hopefully under $500 to make that will be able to grow 300 heads of lettuce a month, just mm-hmm. as like a benchmark crop. We're already actually growing in a school uh, here in Brooklyn uh, called Brooklyn Democracy Academy. Wow. Cool. Where Eric Adams, the uh, Brooklyn Borough President, through some budget his office had, really sponsored it and made it possible for these kids to be involved in the process of growing their own food and taking it home. And that it's, it's a beautiful product that also engages kids of all ages, from high schoolers to 
I remember one time standing in Grand Central Station with an investor and seeing this three-year-old kind of bolt away um, from his parents, run up and just hug the unit. God, um, that's the saddest like, thing I've ever heard. It's just like, you know, we're searching for a connection to food and seeing that green kind of in our yeah. everyday lives, especially in, you know, Brooklyn during the winter yeah. or even anywhere in New York during the winter is just such a, um, a fun experience to get to share with people. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it, And also just the prepared how we've come to kind of prepare all, buy all of our food prepared now, right? So it's like, um, there is even even more disconnect. I might have talked sure. about delivered food kits, but, you know, I'm guilty of it. Like, I will admit, I am participating in the plastic yeah, like sort the of disaster. Shot. I have just my fair share, okay? But sometimes I don't have time to buy an entire watermelon and hack it up. And my kids eat watermelon like hand over fist, to the extent that I remember showing them a water picture of a watermelon once, and they were like, "What is that?" <laughs> and these, I'm like, "You eat it every day. How do you not know what this is?" Oh. And it's because they always eat it; it's already yeah. cut up, so they don't have this experience of like seeing something grow and then watching it be, you know, broken down. Um, and, and so, yeah, I remember hearing this story, and I and I need to maybe check if it's true, but that certain there's certain areas in Switzerland where kids think that cows are purple because that's the color of the cow on a milk of chocolate bar. Oh boy. Mm-hmm. And oh, just scarier stat for you. What is it over again? Something like 50% of Americans think that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. <laughs> no I, I've way. heard that. I've wow. heard that. This is like the most insane thing I've ever heard in my life, but it's true. <laughs> Right. And it's, a, it's it, this kind of goes to that that idea of out of sight, out of mind. Right. Yeah. And you ask someone how long does it take to grow something, or this idea of we're talking about plastic. You yeah. know, how much of our produce comes in a plastic clamshell? Yeah. And when we think about sustainability, in a lot of ways, we need to think about logistics. Um, yeah. Right. You know how they far, especially hand. that last mile. That's the hardest part. And so that's how we think about going from food miles, where I think the U.S. average is about fifteen hundred miles, is how far. Our food on average travels to get to our plate. Ugh. How many miles? 1,500. Yeah, which is the size of, I don't know, how many miles is it from New York to California? Like 3,000. 3, okay, so half the US. Yeah. And so <laughs> going from food miles to food feet, where it's, you know, traveling, especially for our highly perishable and highly nutritious foods, um, really changing the way that that's provided. An analogy I like to use is that we've seen this before. And if we go back to the early 1800s, we used to ship ice from the north via trains and barges. You tell people about shipping ice these days and you're like, you're crazy. And then we got centralized cold storage in cities where it was like, okay, so you know, now in the city centers, they, they build up these massive facilities and then they, they ship it from there. And then the advent of refrigeration and all of a sudden now the idea of shipping ice or even going to your city center to get something that's stored in the cold is insane. Right. And I think that's how our kids will look back at this time and be like, I can't believe either I did this as a kid or yeah. that my parents did this. Like, what were they thinking? Shipping their food thousands of miles when I grew it in my kitchen or my backyard right. um, where I am. So That's a great, great example. Uh, the shipping the ice? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, everything that you're saying makes total sense and the ethos of it is, is, is crystal clear. I mean, but how do you... How do you think about it beyond produce, for example? I mean, we can grow, it, it'll be amazing the day that we can all grow like hydroponic greens and micro lettuce and sprouts and things. But like, what about eggs? And, you know, I'm not talking about packaged foods, obviously, but talking about like the staples that we are. Wheat, corn, soy. And other, and there are certain crops that will never make sense to grow hydroponically or in a hydroponic system. And, and typically a lot of them transport really well, you know, potatoes, um, dries, corn, all, all those items. And so I think it's about looking at our, our, our current resource utilization and where a lot of the waste is coming from on these, you know, highly perishable items, but also looking at the challenge that is increasing food production. The UN estimates that food production needs to increase by 70% by 2050 to feed a growing population. Can you say that again very slowly? Food production <laughs> needs to increase by 70% by 2050, according to the UN. And it's with that, yeah, yeah it's, it's, pretty, that it's, it's a pretty terrifying now. stat. That's daunting. And it's like, yeah. we're not going to find another, you know, like South America sized landmass to grow all that food. Right. And um, especially because we're just burning them down. I mean, well, that's the, another topic for another day. Are we going to talk about the Amazon? <laughs> I mean, no, but <laughs> I think it's, there. that is, that is also interesting in that you see that there's already like stress on our food system yeah. in that they're taking over the Amazon to to, you know, with that, it happens to be cattle. But even if you look at it from a climate perspective, um, a few years ago, there was a black market for broccoli in London after a storm hit Spain because they couldn't get any broccoli. 
And so like our food system is way more fragile than we think. And with growing certain things hydroponically and really, you know, ensuring that production as, as, you know, temperatures and, and weather volatility increases enables us to then re-optimize existing farmlands to grow more of those things that shouldn't be grown hydroponically or in our case in a farm shelf. Luckily, food systems aren't typically monopolies. So you don't have one farmer is growing all of X. And that's good for resilience reasons. And so it's really about looking at it from a holistic perspective and, and doing our part, in our opinion, to grow food in the best way um, for these highly perishable, highly nutritious foods. And then someday, potentially as a platform, really helping connect the producer to the end user that's already growing some of their food. So yes, you grow certain things on a farm shelf and, and you're using, you know, our app and our platform, but also connecting to other food producers and other even ingredients that you otherwise wouldn't try. I think a great company that's doing this right now is, you know, Imperfect Produce and mm-hmm. the way that they're... Yeah, um, ugly fruit. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's like the amount of fruit that we throw away because it's bruised or yeah. chipped or whatever is just shameful. Uh, how much food just ends up in the trash in general? I think we throw out, it was like 30% of our food gets tossed. Um, 30 to 40. And yeah. some estimates have that even now higher. There was an article that just came out this week, actually, that talks about that that was the food waste that they were looking at from after harvest um, until you know the consumer consumes it, where that's not taking into account the actual waste that happens on the farmer side. Right, before right. it even gets that, yeah. That's just the end user. So when you think about this, like needing to grow, whatever, increase by 70% by 2050, Maybe it's not so much about finding the new land and the new, it's about addressing the, the waste. Yeah, and addressing it in different ways. Yeah. And that, again, going back to that logistics problem, a head of lettuce in May, a, a farmer was getting about 40 cents for that. And then with all the different touch points and all the different processing that it takes to get to you as an end user, the USDA average for that head of lettuce was $1.99. So think about that spread, 40 cents to $1.99. That's crazy. Mm-hmm. And so much of that is not only baking in cost for the fact that, you know, one out of every two pieces of produce is ending up in a landfill worldwide um, or not being used, but also that the way that it gets from where it's grown to you is just so inefficient because of, you know, how perishable and how, mm-hmm. you know, tough it is to transport mm-hmm. food after it's been harvested. To pay the distributor, you have to account for a, a you know, it just touches distribution so many center. You know, it has to be refrigerated. You know, it's just a lot of people touching it. Yeah, and it's grown not to necessarily taste good or or you know be nutritious, right but now. to be transportable and look good. And exactly. Look good. Oh, yeah. on that note, can we talk about Harry's berries? There was like a, I think there was an article in the about Times Harry's about berries. Them. You've had Harry's berries, haven't you, Erica? I don't know. They are, he's California, I think, strawberry grower. Mm-hmm. They literally landed on in my supermarket and it was like $15 for a carton of strawberries. <laughs> and I was like, what the hell? $15, wow. but, but oh my God, this is what a strawberry look, should mm-hmm. look like. I mean, it was literally like, you could just look at it and taste how ripe it, it was like perfect strawberry. And then you see the Driscoll container sitting next to it mm-hmm. for like six bucks. and so. They can't keep Harry's berries on the shelf. People are literally buying twice as much for these strawberries that are grown from a farmer who has made the decision, I am going to pick these strawberries when they should be picked at their peak ripeness, because that's what a strawberry, like nutritionally, when it's most you know available, it's going to be the most delicious, all the rest. And I'm going to take a risk and see what happens. And he did, and people are buying it and they can't. He can't keep it in but stock. So what's different about his so, supply chain? or what? So he, he's basically, so what happens is that most farmers, because they have to, like you were saying, account for the, the distance, the time that mm-hmm. it takes to get from A to Z. You know, bananas, whatever, are shipped when they're green. And by the time they arrive to you, hopefully they're yellow. So sort they of, gas them, but like, essentially to turn them from green to oh, yellow that too. and okay. raise the temperature a couple of degrees. So oh you know more about that than I do. But like, so <laughs> strawberries, so they're normally like Driscoll or whatever. They'll pick it before it's ripe, right? right? Because they have to get it to a certain place and they before it rots, mm-hmm. right? Otherwise, if they pick it when it's too ripe, it will be rotten by the time it gets to you. He, anyway, so it was just kind of an amazing test to see it actually work and to see that like people are really buying it. And of course, I live in like a little bit of a bubble here, <laughs> obviously. But wait, so what is what is his, what's his like point of differentiation aside from when he's picking them? Like, how are they getting here in time that they're not, that they're not rotten? Um, I think the point is that once it's on the shelf, like you, they have to be consumed faster. Right, okay. Right, so 
And so when I look at that and look at kind of the conditions that go into growing a strawberry, strawberries um, are really complicated and really like really fragile plants. They're yeah. some of the most you know heavily pesticide and, and herbicide. I think it's like top ridden. three. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's one of those really things that they're like the old, if you if you don't buy anything organic, the yes. one thing you should buy organic is strawberries, strawberries. and coffee or something. And there's yeah. even like organic pesticides and herbicides, and you're like, okay, this is getting confusing, which is what I think is unfortunately happening in our food system is that we're getting lost behind these labels. But that's another story. But looking a few years down the road with where not just like our technology is headed, but others in the industry, it will be paying $5 for a carton of strawberries. That's better than Harry's Berries that was grown within, you know, in our case will be grown within your home or in someone else's case, that's doing indoor farming grown in your city and that it's snowing outside and you're eating the best strawberries that are locally grown that you've ever tasted in your life. <laughs> My mind is like blown mm-hmm. right now. I mean, that is truly revolutionary if that happens. And if you could promise that right now, I will I'll invest as soon as we hang up. And so we actually had an investor in, uh, when was this? I think it was a, a little, little over a year ago. It was sometime during the winter. It was snowing outside. We'd just grown one of our first strawberries in an R&D unit. And we hadn't tasted it yet because it was like just coming time to harvest. And we're like, okay, you know, we're a startup. Like, let's take a risk. We're like, hey, none of us has tasted this. We've never harvested a strawberry before. Like, can you harvest that? And our only condition is that you have to bite in a way where we can actually see, like, you know, we (laughs) need to be able to see. You can't eat the whole thing in one bite. Like, you need it. We need a cross section. And she takes a bite and she was like, wow, like this tastes amazing. Mm. No pesticides, no herbicides, you know, a really great ripeness. And like, uh, a, you know, it's not that white strawberry on the yeah. inside oh, that's oh, super tough. And terrible. you're just like, oh, I got, I got tricked. Yeah. Uh, and that, well, we're not there yet to like make that available to everyone and it's not optimized. It's, it's not that far down the road. The next time you do want to do some sampling, you know, now you know where to find us. So um, the proof is in the produce. And really like, that's what we love doing is like inviting people to test it and, yeah. and, and taste it. The first time that we ever did an installation was in Grand Central Station uh, with a, a chef, Klaus Meyer, the co-founder of Noma. And after one week, um, you know, we, we gave him my phone number of like, if anything goes wrong, call me. And I, he, I get this call from his head chef, Jonas. And Jonas is like, Andrew, I don't get it. I'm like, Jonas, what's wrong? Like getting ready to like, you know, get on the subway, get there. Like what's going, I, you know, did something go wrong with the unit? Um, and he's like, why does it taste so much better? It's like a commercial. Like the <laughs> stuff like, that's like, why is it so like, good? And, and it's like, you know, well, it's because it hasn't been transported miles. It's basil that has depth of flavor, arugula that's got, a, you know, a peppery taste. Right. And things that are grown in a way where they're harvested at peak ripeness. And so, you know, we don't grow tomatoes yet, but a crazy stat I heard about tomatoes is that 50% of the U.S.'s tomatoes are picked when they're green and, and ripened en route. That's Ugh. why I don't eat tomatoes. That's why most tomatoes are not worth eating because that is it's, exactly and then, the case. You know, what do we all want? We want that thing that was grown you know, in our backyard or right. in our grandma's backyard or that we, we hear about when people talk about Italian food in Italy. Yeah. We want that year round. And it's, it's technology that's going to enable that and enable that in a way that's not only scalable, but accessible to everyone. You asked about schools and kind of food deserts and, and really us scaling manufacturing and bringing the price of the unit down and increasing yield will all work to that point where it's going to be cheaper to grow your own by a long shot than it would be to go and get it from a, a local store and maybe even provide jobs in the process. So just to get an idea, you said, just remind me again, how what is the output? Um, eight pound, or in, in terms of heads of lettuce. Yeah. So like when we max mm-hmm. it out, it's up to 140 heads of lettuce okay. or five to six pounds of herbs a week. And then what would be the equivalent to grow that in terms of acreage? Ooh. I, maybe you don't know about Just maybe roughly. roughly. There's a bunch of different stats out there. Everyone calculates them differently. And I think it's an area where a lot of hydroponics and indoor farming companies you know, get into a little trouble. But I would say that it's about... 50%, like 50 times more efficient in terms of a square footage mm-hmm. perspective because okay. you got four levels. Right, you're vertical. And you're growing anywhere from two to four times faster and you're able to go year round. Right. And in a lot of places you aren't. So especially here in, in on the East Coast, I would say, you know, 50X. So let's see, eight square feet, eight, 400 square feet. Yeah, okay. So the restaurants that you're working with, I mean, are they, has there been a situation where they're actually running into it? like having to kind of recalibrate because it's almost too efficient? Like, are they getting yields that are too high? And Certain restaurants, because of just, they're growing a certain subset of crops, you know, for Oath Pizza, we were growing older basil within a month and then we were growing a little bit too much basil for this one location. So we had to add a shelf of mint. But I would say we're not at the point where our systems are efficient enough or where, where our focus is really to grow everything they use. 
And so... Yeah, they resell it. Jose Andres has done that just because people ask about it so much and they're so interested in it that... Yeah. At, well, they um, also have that combined marketplace, right? At Mercado. Mercado, yeah. He'll literally take the thing out and we're like, how are you selling a head of lettuce for five bucks? He's like, man, people Watch want me. it. And we're like, what? <laughs> well, it's, it's Jose Andres. So like, exactly. he can do anything. You're like, feed, we're going to need a percentage of that. Um, in which he's doing an incredible job That's with incredible. World Central Kitchen. It's cool to see what he's doing there. But um, yeah, just this aspect of really providing people the tools in the Lego blocks to grow food where they live, work, and eat. And long-term even thinking about how do we provide those tools and get out of the way? Yeah, You talked about you know Africa and, and providing seeds or something like that. I think it'd be really interesting to go down there and you know provide them the technology and resources and say like you you guys have the cultural context and the knowledge of your market in a way that we will never have and and you're you're driven smart awesome people like what can you do with this technology go for it right. mm-hmm. and just see how they take that and create things that we could never even dream of well because we don't have the same food Ecosystem, right so yeah. they have you know maybe they're growing like moringa and like fonio I don't know like they're doing different things that they have access to different we've even seen a, a cl- a client, you know, they had grown um, one of these uh, rare seeds, uh, tender grains had grown one of these rare seeds partway, and they took it out and actually put it in a field to continue growing it outdoors. So they basically used the farm shelf as like huh. a starter That's because cool. it can get it started and going faster, faster when it's yeah. in that um, kind of more vulnerable state. Yeah. And so there's just so many applications to this technology and, and a platform like this that it's really for us about, you know, making it accessible and in helping that technology really fade to the background and enable a beautiful user experience that truly empowers people, because you don't care whether it's hydroponics, aeroponics, farmponics, right. you really don't care. You care that it's like high quality food day in, day out, that you're proud to grow and that you feel like you're a part of the process. And, and you really are. And other things that we do in order to you know, really tell that story is we have cameras in the system that are not only tracking the plants and how they're growing, but also then providing time lapses of your food growing so that you can share that, that is um, rad. with your kids, with, ah. with your restaurant goers, and basically be like, wow. And we show them, you know, here's a, here's a time lapse of a week of mint growing in one week. And they're just like, there's no way that's real. That's like, incredible. I love it. So it's fast. Included a social media sure. like um, component. It's but amazing. I have to go back to the roots of, pinch, of working at Pinterest. Pinterest. Right. You know, I, I, learned, I learned a lot of things there, including that little tidbit. <laughs> So what about, I just want to get your opinion on, because we were talking before a, a little bit about this, but just obviously food traveling long distance, but what is your take on and how could you potentially interrupt or support or fix this obsession we have now with all of these meal kits and food you know, being delivered to our door and this insane packaging where it will have like a sprig of mint that's like individually <laughs> wrapped, wrapped or like you know, a sprig of tarragon that's like, you know, like I'm talking about plated and blue apron and all of the rest. And there are a million others, but like talk about being separate from how your food's grown, how to prepare it, like the source. That just seems, I mean, as a problem, obviously with, with packaging, but just with our ability to connect with our food. Yeah. And so in, in kind of building off that topic of, you know, growing things that need to be grown where they're, that, Growing highly perishable and highly nutritious things where they're consumed, I think what that could look like is, you know, we grow that 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 basil, that mint, or that lettuce that um, you know doesn't transport well, like in your house, and then that's matched up with a meal kit that mm-hmm. just provides the ingredients that travel well, that don't need to be fast shipped, and that can therefore be shipped in in a more uh, cost effective and sustainable way. Mm-hmm. I don't necessarily have a great answer to the overall usage on kind of the materials, but I think it's that. You know that those refrigerated items that use those massive fiber, uh, you know, packets and, sure. and 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 kind of that cold chain that's often one of the more inefficient parts of that. Yeah. Um, in addition to the packaging, and so I think it's a combination of just, um, you know, I see it as like separating out some of those things. It's like, hey, you grew these things in your farm shelf, and now these things can be delivered to you by plated. That will complete a meal right. that you know enables you to complete that experience. <sighs> but like right. at some point, isn't it just kind of like encourage people to actually. Make the cook time to learn how to cook. For, I mean, we've been doing it for thousands of years. That's a whole other topic of yeah, millennials know, and our engagement with food. And I think when we look at at least the growing, like people that want to grow plants or grow food, that it's 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 incredible to see just the number of people that want to do it, especially kind of the millennials and the Gen Z that are just so interested in that. And then it's, they ask the three questions of, you know, do I have the time, the space, or the expertise? And if you can answer those all yes, then, hey, we're good to go. But the same way that we're trying to you know, enable people to grow food and invite them back in, into that experience in a way that fits their daily lives, 
I think there is an opportunity to do that same thing in the way that people grow food or sorry, make food, but we'll see. I mean, is one of the problems just that we don't want to grow food in this country because it's just, it's, there's not a lot of money in it. It's not sexy. It's not sexy. The sort of like operations around farming, it's very difficult. It's very volatile. It's like, you know, this whole generation, I mean, just Americans in general, like that seems to be the number one outsourced gig is like farming. Like Americans aren't in the fields picking strawberries. Like they're just not. So it's exciting to hear that maybe, I don't know, maybe you're saying that Gen Z or whatever the latest generation is, is kind of getting back or is more sort of energized around agriculture and getting involved in farming or maybe innovating around it. I mean, is that, would you say that's the case, please say. It. Yeah, no, I think there's this <laughs> level of interest in local food, or just even the story behind your food and where it comes from. That is, you know, just only increasing. But then the next thing is, you know, yes, I want to do this, but also make it convenient for me. Right. But how do you make it convenient and also sustainable? And those are kind of you know the things that you got to make sure that you're doing, and that by making this something that they can do in their everyday life and not change too many things, that you all of a sudden make it approachable and possible, and you know, we do have an issue with like not enough people are interested in agriculture anymore. It's a problem. How do we get them interested? I think by showing them, we're, you know, showing them kind of the, the things that go into their food system and a lot of the new, um, you know, fascinating problems and technologies that are, that are being applied to the system to make it more efficient. That it's not, you know, a pitchfork and a tractor. And right, it's actually right. this very high tech, hard to do job now for a lot of different fields right. that, um, that I think if, if more people understood that, right. that they'd be interested in it because it's not this thing that, um, well, I, you know, I got stuck on the farm and, and so that's why I didn't move to a city. Yeah. You don't have to go from hipster to hickster. Hey. Hey. <laughs> well, I do think that, I mean, there is the value in, you know, the social media angle there, which is, you know, it's used for a variety of reasons, but one is certainly to um, kind of expose and answer these questions that people have often not even thought to ask in terms of like, where is my food coming from? How far has it traveled? I think that, you know, you're certainly doing your part. And I feel like conversations like this, like the goal really is to encourage people to consider what they hadn't even considered before. It's like, it's a step before you even decide if you care about it. You actually have to be aware of the question in the first place. So... Um, to that point, like how do we get people interested in agriculture? I think the first step is like making sure they understand that it's something that is even like a consideration to be interested in and then opening up this whole opportunity to see that it is high tech and it can be sexy and it ultimately can yield rewards that you actually see yourself. And just that appreciation of, of, of you know, driving a greater appreciation of where food comes from on a, on a high level. Yeah. Something that we heard from one of our clients was that, you know, they were already doing all these things around so like locally sourcing rooftop beehives and really trying to tell that story of where the food came from. But then when introducing farm shelf, it really pulled the whole story together, mm-hmm. not to just talk about, okay, here's where these things that are part of your dish come from, but then it leads to a bigger conversation where then, you know, it's almost like that opening of the door to then lead to even sure. other ingredients and other things right. about how um, sustainable food and, and local food really works. Right. Now you got to get a chicken. Put a goat in your backyard. <laughs> well, I think we it's funny because I was... Place. When I was like, I don't know, when I was in Greece, like at my random cousin's house in like the middle of effing nowhere, it was like, actually it wasn't in the middle of nowhere, but for me it was. Uh, anyway, but she, like, it was totally normal that there was a goat in the backyard mm-hmm. and we were sitting in the kitchen and it was like, oh, you want some milk? She literally went to the backyard, squirted some goat milk into a can, boiled it on the stove for a few minutes, strained it. And we drank it. And that's how it's done. And that's how it's done, folks. Yeah. And that doesn't get anywhere. But that was like totally... Doesn't get any fresher than and, that. And this is not 1930. This is like, you know... Yeah. Recent. So, I mean, I absolutely love your enthusiasm because I feel like you can see on your face, like it's it's exciting to me to see how excited you are about this because it really instills a sense of confidence in me that like you are going to be one of the people to really change all of this. But what... What keeps you up at night? Like, what is the sort of dark side of this? There's, there's something that's keeping you up at night because this, there's a lot at stake here. Yeah, with any startup, I think it's just, there are so many things that you want to do and it comes to focus and then also resources. And so it's, you know, are we focusing on solving the right problem? Are we executing on that well? Um, from adding new crops to improving yield, but also then fundraising. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it really takes, it takes, a, takes a village or an army to, to do this. And, 
wanting to invest more in you know, our R&D to bring the cost down, to increase the yield and add those new crops um, isn't cheap. And so it's, it get, it's you know, running around and, and asking people for money, um, but showing them where we're headed. Mm-hmm. And so I think fundraising keeps me up at night, um, making sure that we have a great culture um, on this team and really continuing to invest in that at Farm Shelf. Because that's something that um, once it's broken, it's in, almost impossible to fix. Mm-hmm. And that um, you want to not only get from A to B, but you want to enjoy the ride. And a good culture is so important to that. Yeah. How big is your team? With a mix of um, full-time and contractors, it's a 28, mm-hmm. um, which is not small. When it's like a good start? size for culture building. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when did you launch your first... Launch so first start you know full time with uh, other employees working on it early two thousand or January two thousand sixteen, um, so coming up here on four years or three four years yeah four years, which is crazy, and we launched our first unit in mid 2020, 2017. I really you know <laughs> you are so doing God's work for here so. <laughs> I think this is going to be just like revolutionary. I it just, it's such a powerful, it's just, I don't know. It's so impressive what you've done. Thanks. We're really lucky to get to work on what we work on. And so many people have come around to help us in just in crazy ways where, you know, even meeting one of our neighbors in the Brooklyn Navy Yard and then and being like, hey, really random ask, like, can you unload these things from a semi-truck with your forklift and store them in your, you know, area for a couple of days? Oh, by the way, my name's Andrew. And he's like, wait, all right. And I was like, and this is what we do. And he's like, oh, yeah, oh. My, my, my dad did that in our basement with high-pressure sodium bulbs. Like, and I was like, okay, so your dad did the thing that I'm doing now. Yeah. He's like, okay, yeah, we'll throw, like, we'll throw them in the back. And it's like, <laughs> what? Cool. So just so many people have come alongside us and helped us out to help That's us get great. to where we are today. Well, I mean, it's really hard to argue with what you're presenting here, which I think is what is, that's what's exciting about it. Yeah. Like this they, is common sense meets technology, meets innovation and enthusiasm. I think it's like a winning a winning melange. Yeah, they know it's in their best interest. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thank and you we so can't much wait for being to, sh- to share. Thank you for having me on. And yeah. We'll send people to learn more about it at farmshelf.com. Farmshelf.com, as well as, you know, we're at Tender Greens Try in the New products, York. Yeah. Uh, Marcus Samuelson's Red Rooster, mm-hmm. as well as uh, Marcus BMP over in, in Newark. And Hudson Yards. Uh, Hudson right, Yards Mercado. Mercado, as well as a few other places. Uh, throughout New York that we have up on our website. I can't wait. Sweet. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you. Thanks for listening to HTW. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and make sure and rate us on iTunes. You can even give us five whole stars if you think we deserve it. If you have ideas for guests or topics, you can call our 1-800 number. Yes, we have a 1-800 number at 800-674-1839 or holler at us on social at HTW Podcast. You can also head to our website at htwpodcast.com for more episode info and check out our Daily Blend blog to see what we're drinking.